Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is someone I've known for ages, and it's I'm remiss in not having spoken to Kevin sooner. So today, my guest is Kevin Dixon. He's the founder and CEO of Boxstep. He's a sales leader turned sales platform founder, and he's a bit of another grizzled old veteran with an axe to grind. He's grinding it against the insanity of what's acceptable in sales, in sales management, and in sales leadership. He spent 20 years in Ericsson. He was the top salesman so many times, they actually let him keep the trophy, hitting 1,012% of his profit target one year, uh, being the highest paid person in Ericsson. And I am curious about one thing on this one, Kevin. They capped your commission. Yeah, morning, Marcus. It did, yeah, but it's... (laughs) I hear things now about salespeople earning seven, seven figures and things like that in SaaS markets. And you go, ah, so this was, I don't know, what is it, 20 years ago, 22 years ago? And yeah, it's, uh, I, I managed to get them a profit target pretty swiftly in the year. And they knew that uh, they had to increase the cap. And then I got to that as well. And then they said, ah, right, okay, there's about eight months of the years left. We don't want Kevin to stop selling. So they asked me to farm my orders through other salespeople. I did it through nine other salespeople, and all of them end up at President's Club off the back of the orders I booked through the business. Don't get me wrong. Look, I earned very comfortably that year, and it set me up pretty comfortably for life. It wasn't a bluebird. You know, it wasn't lucky. It was, I wrote a blog about it, and people check it out. It's um, how I did 10 times quota by being polite. And that should be intriguing enough to make people want to go and read it because there's also some humour in it. But yeah, exactly. I, I hear about the, the money sales people can earn now. Of course, 22 years ago, it was a lot different, but it was a lot then. Okay, because I hear about salespeople having their commission capped. And to me, it feels like a breach of contract. And I, I'm not criticising one way or the other because I understand paying out a lot of money like that, there's a huge, there's a huge disparity. But it, it gives rise to a question around whether or not uh, the commission structure really is fit for purpose, because it, it seems to theoretically drive performance and behavior, but the results aren't out there. You look at the chronic underperformance against quota. Now, some of that is largely due to overassignment of quota. And the quotas are too high. But there is an awful, there are an awful lot of salespeople out there who persistently don't and probably never will hit quota in, with because of the way they've been trained, developed, recruited, and not coached. Commission's an emotive subject. Anyone who gets in sales, if they've not got in it because they're greedy, I have to question why. So, you know, of course, quota and the ability to beat and achieve quota and earn lots of money is a big driver. And back in the day, it was strange because you could see a lot of people achieve lower performance, 50, 60% of target, and keep their job year in, year out. Because the pressures on an organisation were nowhere near extreme. Today, that doesn't happen, which is why the average tenure is so short, which is why the number of people achieve quota is is so low. And I've heard the term, someone actually said to me once, when when they they got the target and they spoke to the management, they said, yeah, you've got that target because it's an aspirational target. This is what the business aspires to achieve. And you're like, you can't measure and, and handicap someone based on what your aspirations are by giving them an unfair quota. And the other thing is as well, well, it's not the salesperson's really aspirations either. Yeah, ah, yeah. <laughs> Someone does really well one year. The following year, they say, right, we're going to make it much tougher for you compared to the others who didn't do so well because you did so well. Yeah, you've been um, punished for success. But I do think that it should be changed. I think commission should be changed, and here's why. There was a time in, in my day where it was very easy to see that the majority of the reason for the success was down to the salesperson. Now, selling's a team sport. I tell you, quick, I remember, sorry, this, I sold, this is 20 odd years ago, it was 300,000 pounds. I sold a 300,000 pound telephone system for Ericsson on right. first appointment. First appointment. That's right? very good. Because I pitched to the MD, I proposed, and in those days, you had carbon copy order form. I, re- I remember them. 
Uh, but did, did it actually have carbon in carbon paper in between? No, not quite the, as far back as that. Yeah, this is right, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm that old. <laughs> yeah. so you could do that nowadays that that would never happen you know sales cycles got much longer and the fact i couldn't close it on my own because there will be all sorts of different experts helping me because in those days you know i was the educator i always knew more than the customer so whatever i did was going to be an education for them and, and then i could use a bit of relationship bit of charisma deal done now you are reliant on a, a group of people within the sellers to sell to a group of people in the buyers. Absolutely. So I'm all for credit where credit's due and other people who are involved in the sales cycle should also be measured and benefit from, from this commission structure. A friend of mine was pre-sales engineer and he was involved in a really big sale and the sales guy took him out for a really good steak lunch and he was delighted. And um, he came back and he was bragging about it around the office. And so someone said, well, how much commission do you reckon the guy made? And uh, that was his turning point. So he ended up moving into sales at that point. The amount of effort that marketing puts in, the uh, front-end lead generators, the salesperson, the customer success team, strategic projects people, research you know, it's a sophisticated machine now. And we need to think about selling and buying as a team activity where the sell side has to help the buy side facilitate the best decision for themselves. Two things that I want to refer to that really show where commission structures are wrong and the success is not being shared enough. I remember this was 20 years ago. But the numbers involved were huge. Someone in the software industry that was a pretty average salesperson, was classic right place, right time, sold a perpetual license for their middleware to BT. Mm-hmm. They got one and a half million quid for that deal. Now, they immediately left the organization which to be paid because guess what? Their only account was BT and they'd sold them a perpetual license. But one and a half million pounds, one person's always wrong. But the other thing is I was on a, uh, a webinar probably 18 months ago, a very, very large CRM vendor had one of their senior account people talking about and how to sell to enterprise. And this person talked about how they went from $1 million achievement to $5 million. And then they actually turned around and said, yeah, and when I got to the $5 million uh, revenue mark, I earned $1 million. And I'm like, what? So 20% has gone to you. So the customer is spending a huge amount of money on these CRM licenses, and 20% has gone to the salesperson from a customer who was going to buy that crap anyway. That's where I start to struggle. I, I, I greatly believe in salespeople being merited and rewarded for, for their hard work, full sales cycle, you know, really standing out. But when you do that, and some of these products sell themselves, that's wrong. I think part of the problem as well is where the incentives emphasis lies, because there's a huge emphasis on new logos, new business, new revenue. And that's expensive. And whilst it's necessary, it means that the emphasis is in the wrong place when it comes to the where the sales organization is focused. They're so fixated on trying to sell into a cold new market instead of selling hot through personal introduction, through a party who is trusted by both sides. So, you know, their channel is largely seen as a get-out-of-sales-free card by many sales organizations, or even as a competitor. Whereas, in fact, what we know, and we're seeing this in organizations like HubSpot, a shift towards partner-introduced or um, partner-supported deals, because they close faster, they close more reliably, and the order value is typically higher because those people already have intimate understanding and they're trusted by the customer. Now, I think we need to then place the emphasis of commission a little on the new logo win. But when the customer achieves a certain level of adoption and people are actually using the stuff you sold them and then, you know, or consumption levels, and then when they actually achieve a milestone that, you've agreed with them that you contribute to the outcome of, 
then lots of yeah, happy uh, moments happen and you celebrate with the team and the customer. And then on the third renewal, I think is a really good point to pay the team again. I come from the new logo hunting sector yeah. way back. And I was the, you know, the classic hunter and we got paid more and we were revered more than the guys, the farmers that would look after it because that was seen as easier. Because pretty much in those days, when you got a customer, that customer wasn't going to churn very frequently in technology. You, you might have them for seven, 10 years. And that's great because we were paid all of our commission for the, the sort of CapEx deal up front, sometimes multiple deals, and that was great. Now, especially with this sort of monthly and annual recurring revenue principles, the, the new business person is important because they get them on board. But then a lot of the time, customer success takes them over. And actually, it's pretty easy for these customers to churn. So customer success has to keep and develop that customer because you don't want them for one or two years. You want them for those seven to 10 years. So the hard work can really kick in after you close the deal. But sure, I totally agree. There's still, I don't come across many good new business hunters. People are pretty impatient, probably because they're under pressure. I see a lot of bad practices that, uh, you know, it's, it's caused by new processes, automation, sequencing, you know, pretty detached from, from the process. It's all about numbers. It's uh, sacrificing effectiveness for efficiency and the delusion that you can use brute force and throw money at these problems. And you know, looking at the proliferation of the uh, 5,000 core MarTech vendors and the 3,000 adjacent ones and the 1,500 sales enablement vendors, all of those tell me that no one's really found the problem, uh, found the solution to the problem, because there is no the problem. Selling is the wicked problem, and it's made up of all sorts of complicated, intertwined, interrelated areas or causes. Things like how the money flows within the organization, how that affects power, what you measure, who you recruit, who you uh, promote, uh, what you revere, and what emphasis uh, is then placed on the, the wrong behaviors that put the customer at the end of a long chain of abuse as a forgotten afterthought almost. And so I'm really curious. I mean, you, you must have reached a very similar conclusion to me to, uh, when you set up Boxstep, uh, given what you guys do. Do you mind just uh, explaining a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah. So look, I, I spent a long time in sales and then I sort of ended up in sales leadership by default, didn't really want to do it. I loved being this sort of lone wolf maverick, going out and doing stuff, bringing in the big deals and then disappearing, not getting involved in all the rubbish. Then uh, the, the sort of global organization I was working for decided, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to work on pooled commission teams. You, you all put your business into this one group and you all benefit from it. And I said, okay, who earns the most? And they said, the manager. I said, oh, go on and put me down for that. So I ended up in, in, in sales leadership. Then I did that for 20 years and you know, ran some big teams, some large teams. I did sort of global corporates, mid-sized corporates, and even startups. And the startups were great fun. And across that time, you know, like anyone in sales leadership, you use CRM. And CRM is the biggest software sector by revenue now, which is mental. And I started looking and go, okay, right, well, how's it helping? face some of the challenges we're seeing in sales. And what we were seeing in sales was more people involved in the decision process, more focus needed on business problems rather than products and features. And I looked at CRM and said, well, that doesn't really help me. And it doesn't help me help my customers. So I then looked and said, right, relationship mapping. A friend of mine said, can you get relationship mapping in Salesforce? And I said, I don't know, let me have a look. And it was in there, but it was in uh, another platform that was all about sales methodology. So it was bloody expensive. So mm -hmm. I did a side gig. Boxstep was a side gig. I started creating relationship mapping. And then I started thinking, Gartner came up with the whole buying committee principle. And I really bought into that because I was seeing it firsthand. Some people call it decision-making unit or whatever. So we started with that. We were building around what you need to know about a deal over and above what CRMs classically focus on, which is very seller-centric. And then it, it's grown. So we have three elements of know, enable, learn. Know is all about what do you know about the, what they're trying to achieve, who's involved, what's important to them, what's the dynamics between them. 
enable is buying is difficult and complex. We all know that from Gartner's research. What are you going to do to help them navigate their own complexity of buying? And finally, at the end, learn is, right, they've made a decision. What did they think of you about your sales performance? What could you do better? So, so that's really where Boxstep was born out. It really is a complementary tool to CRM, doing some things that CRM maybe should have done. So what are you being able to see that CRM doesn't show? One of the things if you start to look at CRM, look, CRM's customizable. And that certainly, you know, is a ka moment for a lot of uh, CRM custom engineers who are recruited by companies to come and make the CRM work for them. But it's still, if I start to look at it, let's start with a business problem. Business problem, impact, root cause, needs, criteria, consequences, things that you would have spoken about in your sales training days, things like that. Do you ever really see those in an easily viewable and reviewable way in CRM? And, you know, getting the, the relationship mapping. People, even now, today, are still doing it on PowerPoint and trying to attach a PowerPoint slide to, to an account. Really static, goes out of date pretty quickly. I just started seeing things that CRM got to a stage now where they're building ecosystems of all these sort of plugin apps, and that's great. And, and there are plugin apps to do pretty much what we do, but not in one go. We've tried to take a holistic view of a buying committee. So you get individual relationship maps, mapping applications, you get mutual action plan applications, you get a few win-loss applications, but not many. And a lot of them are self-diagnostic rather than buyer perspective. So what we're trying to do is focus more on the who, why, what, when, and how, the intangibles of the deal, which CRM is very seller-centric. We're trying to complement it with a buyer perspective. Okay. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. And also, it feeds into the concept that I talk about a lot, which is this whole idea of buyer safety. Uh, I, I think if you're only looking at it through your selfish lens, the buyer reflects back what you project out. Naturally, they will be defensive. What people seek, it, it, it's a fundamental human driver, is to be heard, to feel felt by someone else, and uh, to feel understood. And it's a primary need as a social primate for us for that to occur. And buyers need that because they're facing, I mean, you know, if, if we're looking just at the sales and marketing choices available to them or security choices, that must be overwhelming. The average enterprise has eight to 900 applications running at any one time. And they've got to maintain them. They've got to buy them. They've got to keep up to date with the licenses. They've got to train in it. And um, they've got to, you know, to get it up and running again when it breaks. Um, it, it's complicated and messy. And we have a duty to make buyers feel safe. You mentioned earlier on about the, the big growth. I mean, MarTech's already huge. Sales tech is already, you know, into the, well into the four figures. And when you actually start to look at that, the large majority of it is prospecting. Mm-hmm. How can we shout more? And I think that, inability to come across as human and caring. And I hate the word empathy because, not because I hate the word empathy, but because everyone's used the word empathy. And I think that's that's one of the things nowadays is that it's almost we've got this sort of convey about of just trying to trying to make throw mud and see what sticks and then try and build from that. Now, enterprise selling is, is that's my background completely. Always been involved in enterprise selling. And box selling is very, it's not about transactional sales, it's about complex sales. And there was a time when you would call a complex sale, it's complex because of the technology, the deep understanding. Now it's complex because of people. And it goes back to what you just sort of said, people want to be felt and understood and things. People. And the fact is you might have a wider group evolved and don't kid yourself that it's the C-suite or the DMs that you need to, to be getting, getting over the line. I have conversations all the time with buyers and they say, unless my team's on board, I'm not signing anything off. Um, That consensus committee-making decision is really important. So everybody wants to be heard. The job of convincing, uh, getting an individual yes doesn't exist anymore. It's a collective yes. So everybody, you've got to to feel and and understand uh, a wider group of people, which makes things pretty challenging. 
again, this is one of the things that f- frustrates me because unless salespeople learn about human beings and how we tick and what drives us and really understand what motivates people because you cannot motivate people. Motivation comes from within. And so, you know, we, we see uh, job descriptions with must be able to motivate a team and all this rubbish. We see this emphasis in technique, but nothing about business acumen, nothing understanding about the moving parts in a business or uh, the power dynamics within a business and the real organizational structure and the internal friction and conflict. That's real life. And that's what you have to help them to navigate because the people that they're more afraid of are their own more often than not. So no one wants egg on their face. So you've got to keep them protected. So tell me a little bit more about the kind of visibility that we as sellers get by using this kind of uh, complementary technology to CRM. You just nailed it in terms of trying to understand all this dynamics with an organization. And that's what I say is selling is more about people management than is opportunity management. Because it's, it's like, as soon as you've got to try and align people, achieve consensus, if you had the whole family round and you say, right, we're getting a takeaway tonight, what are we having? Trying to get everyone to agree is bloody difficult. Yep. Okay, I, I'm sort of, making marginalizing it into something very simple as a takeaway but enterprise decisions when people have opinions no matter what their level are now users have a really big say of technology because without the users giving the thumbs up and happy so it's literally top to bottom you know you've got to people manage so what we try and do is we say look if you ask the average salesperson how many opportunities they're managing and it's, it's normally somewhere between 20 and 40, depending on, on the size and, and, and sales cycle what you're selling. And then you say to them, how many people are typically involved in the deal? And that's really where they fall down, first of all, because typically they predict around about a half, 50% of what the, the real number would be. I talk to people who are doing seven-figure seven deals, and they think there's four or five people involved. Um, <laughs> So we all know there's going to be it's double figures. You know, Gartner's done some extensive research on this. So I sort of say, right, if you've got 20 to 40 deals and you've got an average of 10 to 12 people involved, how many people are you having to try and talk with? And, and they, they do this rough calculation. They say, are you telling me you can put everything you need to know about those people and that deal into CRM in a logical way that enables you to visualize it, share it with others, collaborate with your colleagues, this this wider sales team, so you can strategize about what do you need to do to move this deal forward, to navigate some of the bottlenecks, to help this customer make their own decision. You've touched on something else which really fascinates me, the, the number of accounts that reps are meant to cover. I always apply prices law to whatever number of reps you've got. So a lot of my clients end up with about five 600. The square root of uh, 600 is 24 point something. So what I'm always looking for is those 24 accounts because that's where I know the bulk of the business is going to come from. And then which of the next layer might be groomed into that if they have the potential. But I want to focus on that top 24. And then I want to focus on the top four or five of those that are most likely to be ones that uh, generate the bulk of that business as well. And they'll also buy multiple products, multiple services, um, and I can do the most, I can deliver the most value to them. But I don't think many salespeople think like that because we've been, we've grown up in this transactional uh, culture. I'm writing the preface to one of my uh, books at the moment, and I'm just trying to uh, distill how we've got to where we are. And I, I, I grew up in the era of Gordon Gecko, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and crushing the unions, the idea that greed is good. Um, it was Jerry Maguire. You know, these were the kind of I- iconic figures that were held up. And then that gave birth to the Bernie Madoffs. It gave birth to the Nick Leesons. It gave birth to the Richard Green and the Jeffrey Epsteins and all of those ghastly people. Now, justifiably, the next generation looks at us and they must be incredulous that, first of all, we thought that that was acceptable. The fact that we've given rise to this environment where salespeople are churned through at such a rate that they can never even get close to hitting their stride. 
So the idea that they're feeding uh, and supporting shareholder value by driving this predictable revenue model is insanity. They're doing the absolute opposite. They create disengaged staff. They create people who burn out. They create a middle management layer that's desperately precarious and therefore likely to either be a burnout or a flight risk or damage the relationships vicariously through their their, their teams. You're suffering from attrition and turnover, customer churn. What on earth is the matter with people? They don't look at all of this and think, maybe we need to ask better questions. I have real sympathy for people in sales today. Sure, they make mistakes. They don't always help themselves. But I try to try to look at things saying, right, if you start to look at sales management, sales leadership, they're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Everything about survival mode from top all the way down to the troops in the field or in the offices is pressure. Mm-hmm. Pressure. And the pressure really stems from numbers, whether it's monthly, quarterly, annually, whatever, performance, KPI data, all about numbers. And it's always been one of those things that's bothered me, numbers. And that's going to sound really weird. You know, Ken, what the hell are you on about? Numbers is the name of the game in sales. But numbers are the outcome. Numbers are the outcome of what you know and what you do. And not enough gets focused on what do you know and what you do from sales leadership down to salespeople. You know, a lot of the deal reviews, pipeline reviews, monthly calls with sales leadership. Okay, what's your commit number? How are you going to make that commit number? What happens if that does happen? What's your backup for that? And when you start to analyze, the, you know, a lot of people make, make the numbers. You know, the sales leaders make the numbers. Largely, those numbers don't come from where the forecast said it would. They scramble around, and, and that's great. Another month out of the way, I've survived a month. And, and it's got this perpetual cycle of crap, of, of survival and pressure. Instead of stepping back and saying, right, we've got this group of salespeople that we want to make successful. And how do I coach and lead them through that by helping them focus on accounts in the right way, helping them help the end customer so the likely outputs be better. But it isn't. It's numbers. We're in a numbers-driven game and everyone's preoccupied with survival and pressure. And that just permeates through organizations, which is why churn so frequent. We're customer-centric till the end of the quarter. Yeah. Which is one of the things I said to you earlier. The, the, the thing is one of the things I say to nearly every sales leader and salesperson is most salespeople don't know what they need to know, and most sales leaders don't know that they don't know it. So if the salespeople don't know it and the, the sales leader's got their heads in the sand, you're, you're asking for trouble because everyone's saying, oh, yeah, we're bias-centric, we're problem-centric, we're this, that, and the other. When you go to reality, it isn't like that. You know, one of the things I hear repeatedly from new sales leaders after they've used our platform for a few months. You know, one of the early customers, it was an SVP sales based in Canada, called me four months after using the platform, said, Kevin, uh, your platform's giving me a real problem. I said, why is that? And he said, because I can now see why so many deals are moving to the right in the forecast. My team don't know anybody in the deals. It's not easy to see that they don't know these people in CRM because they've got two or three contacts. But they just, it, it, CRM misses the most important part, which is the middle of the funnel. Yeah, that's where we sit. You put something in, it asks you for a close date, and then your focus goes to the, to the closing the deal, which means that you're not there to serve the customer. You're there to serve the number, uh, which, again, is insane. Your customers deserve better. Salespeople deserve better uh, than this. And what's really going to be very interesting is the demographic shift in uh, values between the boomers who are on their way out, thank God, my generation, which is almost on their way out, thank God. What's your generation? Oh, I was 67, so I'm just post-boomer, whatever that is. Right. Retract what you said about the boomers that are on their way out, thank God, because I'm a boomer. (laughs) But most of you are complete arseholes. And I'll tell you for why, because you hang on and you're attached to what you think made you successful in the past. But today there is no need for it. I I was the last year of the boomers. So maybe I was was almost. But I I think my generation as well, because we were tainted by you lot. We, again, Uh grew up in the 80s and 90s. Sweeping statements are coming out now. It's not fair. I know, I know, I know. But the the reality is what what we really need is multi-generational and uh, loads of range in our organizations. We're in the we're in the first era where we have five generations in some companies now. 
Now, that is really very cool, but it brings with it some really difficult problems because there's a misunderstanding. Um, and uh, be between these uh, different organizations, because they kind of interpret the world through different lens. Now, what's really interesting is historically what tends to happen is the strengths of a particular generation of leadership create the seeds for their own downfall because too much of a good thing tends to be a bad thing. So profit, a good thing. Greed, unfettered, unregulated, and without any sense of the human cost, probably not a good thing. So now you've got this next generation that's coming through, which is very consensus-orientated. Problem with that one is that they tend not to make decisions a lot. So they get stuck because they don't have the discipline, which they also need. And that's another type of leadership. So what we need is lots of different perspective, different types of preference of behavior. And we need diverse organizations to look at our problems. And this is one of the things that I think enterprises forget. Because we, when you become part of that corporate culture and you tend to recruit in your own image, often only weaker, and as a result of that, I think you start to get homogeneity and you lose that diverse perspective. And the best solutions that I've ever come up with uh, have been a result of synthesis of many ideas and many people's input. And I think that's been lost. And in complex sales, it's really important. One of the things that's rife in, in sales organizations and businesses is impatience. Mm. Problem is impatience, and that's why I, I, like, I sympathise with salespeople and I sympathise with sales leaders. Having been in both those positions for many years, of course, at a different time, but even though I'm a baby boomer, I'm someone that every year says, "Last year was successful. Next year will be different. How am I going to evolve? How am I going to adapt?" And, and I think that's that's one of the challenges: is that you, you've got organisations today. Here's the irony that I talk about a lot: salespeople. Sell change management. Change, you know, whatever we do is going to involve exactly. something. We sell change. Yeah, exactly. And yet, the irony is, we are the most resistant to change. <laughs> we sell change management, but yeah, don't include us in that. You know, we don't want to change the way we do. I've spoken to you, those baby boomers you refer to, and so, even some of your era as well. Oh, Kevin, I've been in sales twenty-five years, so you know, <laughs> not a lot you could tell me. I'm like. I've been in sales for more than 25 years, and guess what? And About the last five are the only really important ones now because I've seen the way things have changed and I've adapted, I've evolved. You know, I'll tell you what I am, is I'm the crocodile because the crocodile is about the only dinosaur that survived. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem. A lot of these other ones that disappeared, you know, they disappeared because they didn't evolve and change and whatever. We, we never truly understand the reason dinosaurs, but that's the way the, the, the myth goes. But, you know... It, people have to evolve. Even the younger generation have to evolve because the speed of change in our sales industry now is so fast. I heard such a wonderful, exciting story a couple of weeks ago. My pal, Zach, his 15-year-old uh, daughter, came to him to express how excited she was because she'd been accepted into a development team of 21 kids across all six continents, um, or inhabited continents, and they're collaborating, uh, they've got project plans, they've got KPIs, they've broken uh, up into teams with uh, responsibility, accountability, consulted and informed. And these are them 14 to 17-year-olds self-organizing. Now, what's really, 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 really interesting is how they're using technology um, because we've made space for technology in our lives and we've had to adapt and accommodate whereas they've lived with it all their lives. And what I'm really excited about, and I'm sure she is the exception, not the rule, because I've got three teenage kids as well, and they're not like that. But the idea that uh, this is happening is so exciting. And it's only been facilitated because the, uh, the technology is out there. It's evolved out of stuff like uh, Discord and Slack and all of that kind of stuff, uh, that they can collaborate. But what's really interesting is they're taking it to another level. They're going beyond collaboration because they're co-creating and they're co-elevating one another. You know, this next couple of generations are really good confronting bullying and uh, supporting one another. Now, that's something we lacked. It, it was a weakness if we needed support and help. 
collaboration is definitely a key word moving forward. And you've got it, you're talking about the community collaborating with each other over those different issues. And I actually largely think that collaborations with the buying committee is, is the key to success for a lot of people. Is they don't, you know, no one likes to be sold to. Uh, if they've got a problem to solve, largely it's it's really difficult to differentiate on a product level to solve it. What you can do is differentiate on the the buying experience, the whole engagement experience, and yeah. that's where collaboration comes through. And and it's really difficult for salespeople to adapt because there's so remember this 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 pressure that's coming down all the time. They're forced to do things that wouldn't necessarily be be natural and the impatience that's coming down is forcing them to try and accelerate it. The amount of time, oh, we've got to get that deal in for the quarter. And guess what? We might get the deal in, but we might get it at a ridiculously low number. But guess what? We made the, we made the order number, but not necessarily the profit number. So collaboration, I think, is it, it does need patience. Sales cycles are longer. Um, we have to get it so that sales teams are more stable. The churn isn't as much. We have to get it that sales leaders are looking after their team in a way to focus them on, on the right sort of things, not the numbers game. And then, you know, the bias, bias, the amount of people I talk to about bias and yeah, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that. They're not bias centric. It's lip service. You know, it's the latest buzzword bingo. And yeah, I'm in on that. We do that. We're a bias centric organization. That's why when you sort of look at Gartner's research on buyer enablement, and then everyone's saying, yeah, we're going down this route with the right content for, for the buyer at the right stage of their journey. When you look at it, it misses the mark so badly. So tell me this, with, with a technology like Boxstep, is it possible to be able to extrapolate the buyer's uh, typical journey to be able to identify the struggling moments that you need to turn up to be the guide? No. so it will do so we're a pretty low cost product but we deliver a huge amount of value we're like 150 quid per user per year 200 bucks whatever it might be but we do see the vision is as the product evolves is we're really trying to get more and more being fed back from buyers and one of the tools we have which is the second phase which is enable is what some people refer to as mutual action plans we call them outcome enablement plans not just to be different, because mutual action plans, there's two words buyers don't like. They don't care about mutual, and they don't like the word action. If you say it's an outcome enablement plan focused on you, they're, they're, they're all in. And one, one of the things about that is it's really about trying to, a good mutual action plan, You know, it's not just about all the timelines to get stuff done. A good mutual action plan is guiding the customer almost from a neutral perspective. And that is an alien thing to say to people, step back, just try and help, don't try and sell to them. And actually by helping, they're actually going to be, they're going to gravitate towards you anyway. And I think- How you show up is how you differentiate. How you show up is how you differentiate. Yeah. And and what we try and do is if, when you read Gartner's research, it's interesting because they say, here's one of the issues I have with the sales industry. We are producing more and more what I call sales crap. You know, uh, marketing sales will call it their collateral, their content. But guess what? It, it's very much about, woohoo, look at me, look at me. Now, people talk about, well, what, why, is, why is buyer enablement different to sales enablement? And I say, well, it's different in, in quite a big way because it's a mentality and an approach. It's a subset of sales enablement. When they say, well, how, how do you separate the two? I say, right, buyer enablement is really addressing the, the why change, why now? Sales enablement is addressing the why us. And I think the why change and why now is where buyers get hung up, and that's why there's so many no decisions. And and I think too many people are so focused on sales enablement, why us, why us, why us, that they don't think about saying, what do we do? But it, it breaks the fundamental rule that buyers buy for their reasons, not the seller's reasons. Um, that, I mean, it, it, never in the history has um, my desire to buy an Aston Martin DB9 been a reason for someone to uh, buy my products or services? Yeah. And it never will. No. See, here's the thing. There are marketing departments are working overtime along with sales producing some a high quantity of high quality content and collateral. And the problem is, is, guess what? Everyone says we're the biggest, the best, the fastest, most reliable, blah, 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 blah. The buyer gets all of this collateral from all of the different vendors involved 
and goes, geez, where do I start? You know, you almost end up with analysis paralysis. That's why you end up with that they have to sort of go through all of this and deconflict it all because they go, well, what's real? What's relevant? Who, who is the choice for us? And that's why stepping back from that typical sales treadmill and starting to say, right, let's walk a mile in the buyer's shoes. Let's work out what has to happen for them to, to go through their own process of decision-making. And instead of about content and, and et cetera, about why us, focus on programs, tools, content, about why change, why now? And that is really going to draw them to a process of actually coming to a decision rather than no decision, and more than likely going to feed into your direction. And those sort of things, you know, there, there's I wrote a, a blog about it recently, don't, don't Send Buyers Your Sales Crap, pretty straightforward. And if people read that, you'll see in there, there's some ideas about what sort of things you can create that will help them sort of go through a process of, are we ready to make a change? What about ROI? What about a checklist to make sure we've done all the right things? Who should we be involving internally? Anything you can do to help them in that decision process. And this is why I think um, we've got to get away from this adversarial type of sales approach. We need to be walking hand uh, hand in hand with the customer you know, through that discovery process where they're learning for themselves. And this is why I think there's a huge problem with the emphasis on quarterly results and quarterly targets, because it means salespeople don't focus on the medium to long-term pipeline. If you can give your salespeople enough runway and the, equip them, enable them to uh, do their job well, to build that medium to long-term pipeline, then in a year's time, the deals will start coming in. But if you're putting them under pressure early, the chances are they're going to just focus on what they're being measured on. And that's not my behavior. What I said about my three-layer cake, you know, impatience, survival, pressure, it's all permeating down. And that's why people aren't thinking about their mid- to long-term cycle. It's like it's about surviving now will put off a longer-term strategy. When I My sales career was very successful. I'd spend 70% of my time focusing on the quarter, mm-hmm. 20% of my time keeping the next quarter you know, churning along nicely, and 10% of my time building for the longer term. And what that meant is I went from one year to another with a good, healthy, quality pipeline. You know, I was very ruthless, even back in the day, in carving out what what I couldn't see as being a deal I could do. The difficulty nowadays, it starts with this this calculation that says, right, you've got to have a pipeline. Your target is 1 million. You've got a a close rate of, um, of 1 in 4. So you've got to have a constant pipeline of 4 million. Uh, and we're going to check you on that. So guess what? Salespeople sometimes stuff it full of crap. I don't say sometimes, a lot of the time. Stuff full of crap because they've got to get these KPIs that you've got a certain pipeline that's going to be feed the sausage machine through with output of orders. And when you're putting in poor quality, poorly qualified deals in there, it's just creating the problem. I had a, a client I was working with and he was at 230 of quota about month eight. And his manager had been put under pressure from the board and the shareholders to try and pressure him to put out more proposals because his proposals rate was about a tenth of everyone else's. However, he had a 96% close rate on them. Fantastic. Um, And they're measuring all the wrong things. Yeah. why, Why is it that they're focused on these metrics that mean nothing in terms of building a healthy, sustainable business that, that mean certainly mean nothing and actually get in the way and create friction between the, you as a company and your customers. Why is it that we spend so much of our, our time focusing on selling cold instead of selling warm and hot? We know that partner-assisted deals are significantly more valuable. They close faster. They close for higher order values. They're more reliable. They churn less frequently. But we, we seem fixated on just the wrong things. And why do we not learn? I wish I knew the answer why we didn't learn because there's enough content out there. There's enough speakers. There's enough training that are trying to change people. And a lot of people do the nodding dog thing and then they go back to their default ways of doing things because of impatience, survival, pressure. But it's, and you're right, going back to partners, 
um, the, the partner ecosystem is growing exponentially. And some of our best and biggest deals have been created through partners. So you know, be, because they have existing relationships with some of the target customers, you've got that warm open door principle. Whereas and they are trusted by both sides. Yeah. And what we know is that you've got a 14 to 18 times higher close ratio. And that's just the beginning because the odds are the initial order value is going to be at least two to three times bigger. The order frequency may well be higher unless you're on a um, monthly uh, subscription. But the cross-sell and upsell potential is higher. The referral rates with it internally and externally are higher. It's especially difficult for small companies like us because it's more difficult for small companies to succeed. So getting that warm, trusted introduction and seal of approval from a partner is really helping grease the wheels. If you look at organizations like Salesforce, UiPath, their partner program is very much alive and well for the, for exactly that reason. And far, far too often, the emphasis is placed on the transaction, not on identifying customers for life. There, again, I think we really need to shift our belief system and what, what we value. I want a customer who'll be a customer in 10 and 15 years' time. I don't want to have to go out and find one a year for the next 15 years. Getting prospects is difficult. Prospects who end in no decision is disappointing. And one of the things, and you and I spoke about this earlier, one of the other elements of box that we look at is when a deal ends, whether it's a win, loss, or no decision, that's a learning opportunity. Yeah. We talk about, sell, right, we've got to get better. We've got to do things better. But most of the time, we're being self-diagnostic. You know, guess what? We tend to look at a person who's done well in their target performance, quota performance, and think they must be good. That's not always the case. We look at someone's underperformed, think they, they must be bad. That's not always the case. Sometimes circumstances are against them. So what we try and do is we say, if you really want to get better, if you want to know how you can turn losses into wins, if you want to turn the number of or reduce the number of no decisions, start to get the buyer's perspective, every single deal, learn what you did well. Did we help them? Did we really understand their business problem? Did we really focus on their needs? Did they consider us subject matter experts? It's a really simple way of doing it. I mean, win-loss, everyone says, we know we should do it. We need to do more. We see the value in it. We just don't get around to it. So that's the one tip I'll give to any sales leader. Learn more from the buyers because we're in a buyer-driven market. Your buyers teach you more than any training. I've never learned anything substantial from my wins either. I've learned from a good drubbing. My wins are the culmination of all of those beatings. When I speak to sales, they say, do you do win-loss? Yeah, we do. What does that involve? Well, we get together as a team afterwards, and if we've lost a deal, we sort of discuss where we think we lost it. So I said, that's just a blamestorming session because there's no way a salesperson's going to put their hand up and say, you know what, that was my fault. I had an absolute shotgun. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, the fact is, is that you've got to start getting the buyer's perspective. You will get golden nuggets galore. Absolutely. And when you start, the more, more times you request it, you start to build a picture because the data starts to produce an overall picture about individual salespeople and the reasons why you win or lose. And uh, the key is in the small data as well. It's the, in the nuance. And there's a fabulous book by Martin Lindstrom called Small Data, which if anyone hasn't read it, definitely worth a read. Uh, on that note, what would you recommend people to be reading, watching, listening to? Gosh, you know, I like a few things. Um, there's a few people I... I it's difficult because not everything is everyone's cup of tea. I love Dave Brock and his regular blogs. I'm, Absolutely. He's an older than me. He gets up half past four in the morning, writes a blog probably five times a week. Fantastic. There's a guy called Jeff Hoffman in the States, does a free webinar on every Tuesday with CeCe Aparo, who's his psychic and that. And Jeff, Jeff is the uh, mentor of John Barrows, who's a very well-respected. Yeah. And, and Jeff, honestly, there's something about Jeff. I find him educational and entertaining. Super, I love watching those two guys, you know, and, and it's great for, for salespeople. But, uh, you know, I'm reading a book at the moment called Sales Management That Works. Ah. Cespedes. Do you know, Frank? Are you looking at my little... <laughs> That's not quite as cool, is it? I shouldn't take that out. But Frank's a Harvard guy and uh, quite interesting. 
quite interesting because he's starting to look at the bias. I, I didn't hear the title again. It's called Sales Management That Works. How sales to sell in the, sell the world that never stops changing. Excellent. Harvard lecturer, so super smart bloke. I've had a call with Frank as well. Interesting. And yeah, so he, he sent me a soft copy, but I'm a baby boomer. I, I like hard copy. <laughs> and your eyesight clearly isn't as bad yeah. as mine. So, okay, you're looking back and you've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Kevin, aged about 23, what one choice bit of advice would you have passed on that no doubt he would have ignored? Enjoy the hair, you're not going to keep it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so what would that... It's difficult because if I look back at that and, and I had some good guys give me tips and I, I was a constant learner, I'd say never stop digging. And the fact is, is you can't you can't know too much information about a prospect because there are the business problems and then there are the people involved and what's important to each of them. Because I look at selling as become almost like building a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. You've got to get all the pieces in place. And especially if you're going to win to the, the enterprise or complex deals, there isn't a case of, yeah, complete the puzzle, but there's a couple of pieces missing. That's a no decision or a lost deal. So keep digging. There isn't a, There's too many salespeople get into a comfort factor. They go, I've got a champion. Well, more often than not, it's not a champion, it's a fan. And they go, yeah, this person's going to push you through. And uh, So I just think keep digging. Higher, wider, deeper. Excellent. Okay. This has been really very, very interesting, and I'd love to have you back. I really want to dig the next time uh, more into the insights of the uh, the guts of the middle of the funnel and what you're learning from that. Would you be up for that? Oh, absolutely. Middle, middle to bottom of the funnel is where we sit. So yeah, yeah. that's where we're talking to people and where we're learning. Excellent. Okay. Well, Kevin, how can people get hold of you? Usual stuff, LinkedIn. I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn. So Kevin Dixon, Boxstep, or drop me a line, Kevin at Boxstep.com. You know, if you guys want to chat sales or invite me to a podcast or come on my podcast or preferably you want to look at Boxstep, that would be great. I'm a sales guy. (laughs) Excellent. Kevin Dixon, thank you. Pleasure, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please tag someone who could benefit from it and like, comment, and share. And if you feel the urge, subscribe and do leave a uh, an honest review for the Inquisitor podcast on Apple or wherever else you can. And in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.